So how are we feeling being on the other side of the Christmas celebrations? Have you recovered from the parties and the family gatherings? No? Okay. <laughs> Maybe you're feeling it. Maybe you're feeling the post-Christmas slog and sadness, the post-Christmas feeling of getting back into the normal, everyday swing of things, when the holiday haze starts to fade from your vision and the world around you seems a little bit more dull, back to everyday life. Maybe some of us are still riding that holiday high, still intent on carrying out that Christmas spirit. It is, after all, still technically Christmas. But no matter what, time marches forward and life goes on. We have to tend to the things in life that were happening before the celebrations, the things we had the chance to set aside or to put to the back of our mind. They've been waiting for us to come back. These things look like responsibilities, commitments, fears, worries, the events happening in our world, in our country. Christmas can provide a much-needed respite and recharge from all the weariness, but year after year, Christmas comes and goes. The feeling fades, and despite the reminder of where we ultimately place our hope, we find ourselves surrounded by what we tried to leave behind before we celebrated the birth of our Savior in a manger. Our passage this morning reflects this in a much harsher sense. As commentator Thomas Troeger puts it, this is Christmas post-nativity. This is what happens after the shepherds and the magi leave. This is when the celebrations end and the singing has stopped and the gifts are open and all that's left is a young newlywed couple taking care of their newborn child. So hear these words from Matthew's gospel. When the magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the word spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. After King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he went to the area of Galilee. He settled in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's not just the post-holiday blues that the Holy Family is dealing with. They're dealing with frightening, life-threatening realities. They have to go on the run. They have to flee the wrath and violence of Herod. Herod is ordering the killing of children, babies, two years and younger, so he can wipe out this mysterious newborn king of the Jews. So much for peace on earth and goodwill towards all. This story is a harsh and stark look at the reality the Jewish people were facing under Roman rule. In our own world, reflects similar horrors. This story reminds us of that. It looks at us sitting by the fire, wrapped up in our blankets, drinking hot cocoa, relishing and resting in that cozy Christmas feeling, and dumps a bucket of cold water on us. All right, back to business. This is a tough text to deal with. We probably don't want to hear it right now, so close after celebrating such a joyous occasion. I could see the look on some of your faces. Why is he reading this? But as much as we might try to ignore this story or these realities that are present in our world, we can't. The scripture compels us. The story reminds us that this didn't just happen to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. It also happens today. We have moments of joy and celebration and miracles that bring us to a deeper sense of God's presence and care in our lives. But we also hold those moments in tension with what we face on a day-to-day basis. The heartbreaks, the despair, our fears and our deepest insecurities, the terrors that litter our world. Yet, it's not all grim and foreboding. It is, after all, right after the celebration of the birth of Jesus. As discomforting and full of despair as this story sounds, this story still provides ample amounts of comfort and hope that we as a people of faith are invited to claim. The Christmas story post-nativity tells us even more profoundly how true the reality of Emmanuel really is. It reminds us that even in the midst of trouble and despair that inevitably follows even the greatest and most fulfilling experiences, God relates to our suffering and our heartache by experiencing it alongside us. God knows our pain. God doesn't ignore or push away our harsh experiences and our tough realities. God embraces them and invites us to embrace them too. The hope of the Christmas story Post-nativity claims that God is present and moving even in the most despairing and painful circumstances. So what does it mean to know that God is with us in those situations? How do we live and act in that reality? Well, it might be helpful to note how this is reflected in the characters of the story, Herod, Joseph, and Mary. There are certain characteristics of what they faced that jumped out at me in my own reflections. The first characteristics we want to look at are power and vulnerability. Herod has power and rules over the people. He has the resources to enact whatever he wills. And so he wills that the soldiers go out and do his bidding by killing innocent children. Which, by the way, according to one commentator, was not quite legal for Roman law. Joseph and Mary, on the other hand, 
don't have much in terms of material resources and power. They've got means and supplies to travel, presumably. They've got gifts given by the Magi, but otherwise, they're severely lacking compared to Herod. But what they do have is agency. They have agency in the will to follow God's leading, to participate in God's plan despite the threat that they face by the powers that seek to control and stop them. So God's presence and power manifests itself not just in the messenger who warns Joseph in his dreams or in the baby Jesus, but in Joseph and Mary's vulnerability and their willingness to risk their lives in being a part of God's work of salvation. The next characteristics we want to look at are fear and faith. Herod, while his actions are an expression of the power and privilege he holds, is really reacting from a place of fear. He fears a threat to his rule. He fears a claim to the throne he holds above the Jewish people, which, as sad and scary as it is, is also ridiculous to think about, a grown man being threatened by a child. Joseph and Mary, on the other hand, are surely afraid. Joseph is warned in dreams about Herod and fears for the safety of his family. He avoids traveling back home because he's afraid. But does fear stop him? Does fear cause him to abandon God's will and to act out irrationally towards those around him? No. He remains determined and focused, maintaining trust in God's leading and God's care alongside the fear that he feels. So both parties are reacting from a place of fear, but the question becomes, are they honest about it? Are they honest about their vulnerability? It seems that Herod is not. Joseph is, yet still maintains resiliency and resolve to follow God's leading. Again, this is the results of God's power and presence being made manifest. God's power and presence allowed Joseph and Mary to do all of this. And finally, we want to look at the characteristics of despair and hope. Herod, fearing the end of his rule and a threat to his claim as ruler over Judea, is despairing. His fear and expression of power are expressions of despair. He despairs at the realization that he might not rule forever. And so he expresses this and tries to change it through violent means. And what does it all come to? He dies anyway. Despite his efforts, despite all his power, all of his accomplishments, all of his rule, they end up with him in the ground. Joseph, meanwhile, is certainly afraid of death. He realizes his time and Mary's time will come to an end, but he doesn't give in to despair. Hope rings true that something more is happening. Joseph and Mary maintain hope that God's plans are coming to fruition, and they have a firsthand part of it. Because of God's presence with them, they have an ultimate trust that no matter what, they belong to God. God will protect and care for them. They hold and care for the literal embodiment of God's hope for all peoples in the world in their hands. So to sum all that up, God's presence with us in the messiness of our world means that instead of relying on expressions of power, we can find rest and strength in our vulnerability. God's presence means we can be honest about our fear, but not let it take hold of us and prevent us from being who we're called to be. God's presence means we can maintain hope and trust 
that this isn't all there is, that God has more going on just around the corner that we're invited to be a part of. We can be confident and resilient in this hope. So that's the what and the how of the good news of Christmas. But what about the why? Why does this good news of God's presence with us in our suffering matter? Well, as pastor and theologian David Lowe's puts it, when you think about it, Emmanuel, God with us, wouldn't really mean all that much if it was only God with us during the tender moments, during times of celebration, during the Christmas Eve services of our lives. Yes, those moments of joy are gifts from God, and it's right to give God thanks for them. But if we're glad that God is with us in times of rejoicing, we're desperate to know that God is also with us in times of grief, loss, and fear. That's Matthew's point and why it's important for us to tend to this story so soon after celebrating Christmas. The Gospel of Matthew reminds us that God is present with us and loves us not just in our times of celebrating or rejoicing, but also in our tough and difficult times. God is with us in the best of the best as well as the worst of the worst. The story of the post-nativity scene invites us to be authentic and honest about the realities we face in the world and to not let the holiday celebrations overshadow them too much. As Professor Eric Barreto points out, Matthew's perspective is not mere naivete. His faith is not simple. The narrative of these threats upon Jesus' life bristle with authenticity, for such tyranny was well known to ancient people. Matthew's trust in God's providence emerges not from trying to prove the accuracy and truth of this story, but from a faith that expects God to reign in a world where the dominance of the powerful seems unchangeable. In other words, Matthew's gospel reflects a faith that insists, despite the odds that overwhelm us, despite how bad things seem to be, God's truth and promises still carry on. The promises of God's love lasting forever and never leaving us remain true, no matter how the forces of evil try to convince us otherwise. So what might it look like for us today to affirm those things, to trust those things? Well, this scripture raises some interesting challenges. Is God's presence and activity made known in demonstrations of power and violence? Is it in trying to prove why we're the greatest and no one could ever take away our power or prestige? Or is it in vulnerability and courage, the kind that we see Mary and Joseph living out and following God's leading and helping to carry out God's vision for the world? My bet is on the latter. Where do we see that in our own world? Great vulnerability and courage and resilience being shown despite the terrors and hardships. Maybe it's communities affected by gun violence, working for change, not losing hope that someday soon they can walk around their neighborhoods or go to church or go to work safely again. Maybe it's communities and people like the Holy Family who are fleeing violence and seeking peace and safety in foreign lands and countries, trying to grapple with such great tragedy and upheaval. Maybe it's youthful voices calling for greater attention and care to these things and more, they're constantly written off or discredited by our leaders for being too young or naive 
or inexperienced. Wherever we see this, God's presence made known in vulnerability and courage, the choice presents itself. Are we going to follow God and be present in the suffering? Are we going to embrace the world as it is and see God present and active and moving, even in the most fear-based and victim-filled places? Or are we going to try to ignore it and cover it up with a false sense of security, all in the name of maintaining peace and good cheer for the Christmas season and beyond? The Christmas story, even after the manger, is about God coming down to be with us in all of our mess, all of our weariness and despair, and still proclaiming, I am with you. This isn't the end. There's more to the story. I'm still on the move. By becoming one of us in the person of Jesus, God shows incredible vulnerability and courage. God doesn't shirk away or ignore the harsh things of life. God embraces them. God dives deep and embodies flesh and bone to show us what it means to really live into hope and to embody love. And at the end of the day, that's what Christmas is all about. Not that God came down and fixed everything so that we don't have to worry anymore, but that God came to know us and show us ever more clearly that God is present and active in the pain so that we can have hope. Christmas invites us to claim that hope and show great vulnerability and courage by living into its good news, living into the reality of hope, peace, joy, and love made manifest in the Bethlehem manger. May we be encouraged and empowered to do so, not just once a year, but all the days of our lives. Please pray with me. Loving God, thank you for being with us and moving in our midst. Thank you for being present in the manger, for becoming vulnerable and showing us what it means to have great courage and hope in the midst of despair and fear. Help us to live into our own vulnerability. Empower us to maintain an active hope for the sake of the people and places who so desperately need to hear and know your good news. We pray all these things in the name of the one who came to dwell with us and teach us how to do so. Christ our Lord. Amen.